You are listening to the Evolution Exchange podcast Nordics, a melting pot of ideas and inspiration shared by some of the most successful technical leaders in the Nordic region. I'm Chris Bennett, and I help connect businesses with tech freelancers, and I'm your host. Okay, um, hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Evolution Nordics podcast. Um, today we're going to be talking about how to create an engineering excellence culture in a software company. Yeah, um, we've got three fantastic guests here today um, and we're going to do uh, some introductions. So uh, in the interest you are on the call first, Tobias, could you introduce yourself, please? Yes, I can. Thank you, Chris. So my name is uh, Tobias Palmborg. It's Swedish pronunciation is Tobias. Usually, I, I when I talk English, it's Tobias. Um, today, I'm I'm kind of representing, uh, of course, myself and in my own thoughts, but also SBX. And SBX is um, kind of like a startup within uh, an incumbent bank called SEB. Um, so we have a, a dual purpose within SBX. We're here to explore and innovate with new technologies try out a lot of the stuff that is not mainframe, uh, which the incumbent bank is sort of primarily using, uh, but also to find new uh, business models and explore sort of what the future of um, finance or banking uh, is. The SEB has been around for 160 years. Uh, we have a clear mission that we need to be relevant within the next 160 years as well. So it's a pretty interesting um, context being in a fintech startup, uh, which have kind of done for, uh, but with the incumbent volumes in some cases and 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 the balance sheet, uh, not talking too much about money, but uh, having that as an opportunity is, is, is great. So it's it's very interesting times. Uh, I have a previous background, sort of um, Klarna as one fintech. I've been CTO for a fintech startup, a bank called North Mill here in, in, in Stockholm. Um, I've done a little bit of everything, but always focusing on sort of um, effective and um, and I would say good um, engineering organizations. Um, I've done um, a little bit of gaming um, in a couple of occasions. I've, I've done um, appliances with Electrolux, um, interesting journey as well, building IoT with an old fashioned company like uh, Electrolux. So, yeah. That's kind of me. Uh, privately, I'm, I'm a father of, of three daughters, which is becoming more and more challenging um, as they all are sort of entering their teenagers, which is super interesting. Um, another type of sort of leadership, I wouldn't say I'm a leader at home, but trying to manage conflicts and, and, and try to be a good dad. Interesting times. Love that. Love that, Tobias. Um, I'm going to work on that pronunciation. Um, okay, um, thank you for that. Now let's go to uh, Jamie. Great, thanks Chris. Uh, cool, so my name is Jamie Ingleby and I work for Klarna in their engineering and their decisioning, banking and servicing domain. And uh, I've been, although I <laughs> may not sound like a uh, Swedish person, I um, actually live in Stockholm where I have been for the last uh, four and a bit years, uh, primarily with Klarna. How I ended up moving from London to Stockholm, I still have no idea, but the fact that I'm still here four years later is, I would say, a pretty pretty good uh, testimonial for the Swedish lifestyle. Uh, I uh, 
particularly uh, have, or I, I've been mostly prior to working for Klarna, I've been in a variety of kind of uh, companies in London, primarily in, for example, Netaporte or Betfair, which is now Paddy Power Betfair as kind of online exchanges. Um, and uh, yeah, I, on a, from a personal level, I'm not quite doing as well as Tobias. I only have two daughters, but that's plenty trouble enough, frankly. Uh, so uh, I will uh, admit that he's clearly the bigger, much better parent than I am in that front. So. <laughs> Perfect, perfect, I'm Jamie. I'm sure that, uh, that is a good thing, Jamie, right? <laughs> <laughs> Don't sound like this. Very loose use of the word better. Uh, <laughs> but nevertheless, uh, very impressive, Jamie. So thank you for that. And Jamie's actually uh, talking the way I'm supposed to. Um, <laughs> um, and then finally, but not least, um, Andreas. Thank you. So if it's a competition in kids, uh, I also have three kids, but I also have a dog, uh, a Dutch hound uh, named Lage. So does that mean that I win the competition? <laughs> dog name Lager. Lager, yeah, exactly. Well, that is a win. He is the oldest. He's eight, eight years, actually. But uh, nice to meet you all. Um, my name is Andreas Helge, and I've been at uh, GetAccept for around uh, two and a half years as a VP of Engineering. So GetAccept is a, a global SaaS company uh, that provides uh, digital sales rooms, and you might wonder what that is. Uh, and it's a, it's a kind of a secure place where sellers and buyers can meet and share content. Uh, we do e-signature and so on. So, And my main responsibility have been to scale our engineering team, uh, going from a kind of a startup uh, to scale up uh, for the last two and a half years, I would say, since I started. Um, and we have gone from five uh, in R&D to around 50 uh, at the moment. So a lot has been evolving around building processes and, and, and doing hiring and building teams, I would say. And my, my background has been within engineering uh, since the uh, 90s. And, and uh, I would say the last eight years, I've been a lot involved in R&D leadership. Uh, I love building teams, and I think it's 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 very fun to go to work on every given day. Uh, I live in South Malmo uh, with my fiance and three kids, uh, as I said. And uh, in my spare time, I like to renovate my house and uh, play paddle. Everyone plays paddle nowadays, but uh, yeah, uh, I, I I don't have the time to do that much anymore, uh, unfortunately. I also would like to take the opportunity to do a shout out to my amazing team at GetExcel. That's me. Perfect. Believe it or not, I've been listening to people talk about paddle in, in, in Sweden now for about three years and a mile away from me in um, Warrington in the northwest of the UK, they're actually opening their first paddle call. Yeah. So it's a big moment. It's finally moved over to the UK paddle. So I'm going to give it a shot. I've heard, I've heard it's um, pretty easy, so I'll give it a shot. Um, anyway, let, let's crack on with uh, the podcast um, and let's let's just remind uh, our listeners. So today we're discussing how to create an engineering excellence culture in a software company. Uh, as per usual, uh, each uh, member of the panel has brought a, a topic, a question, a statement that they would like to explore. And hopefully we're going to get the views of the rest of the panel on those questions. Um, so first of all, we're going to come to Tobias. Um, Tobias uh, messaged me and we were having a chat about his question and 
he was asking, how do we engage people to take accountability for an excellent software culture? Um, so Tobias, I, I suppose I'm going to come to you. So context about why you asked it and maybe some thoughts to get us going. So kind of context and where this question comes from. I think I think um, culture is 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 at the strongest um, sort of it's it's a strong movement when people really believe in it, right? And when people uh, actually own up to it themselves and 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 drive it themselves. So, so my question is around how can we engage people to really sort of drive um, this, the the excellence part of of this question, right? Um, how do we make sure that people feel not only pride, but also responsibility and accountability for um, offering a good service, right? Um, the excellence part of this. So that's that's kind of where I come from. Um, of course, I've, I've I've thought about this before, and I have my small hints and, and cues for it. But but it'd be super interesting to see what the rest of the panel says about this. Is it possible even to do in all cases? Uh, can or is it does it require some some special surroundings in order to achieve this? I'm going to come to you, Jamie. Yeah, you've been working at Klarna, I know, for four years. So um, I imagine you thought about this question. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think the, so in the, when talking about um, building an excellent software culture, I think it's, first of all, you need to align on what is, what are the aspects that you're trying to be excellent at? What does that mean? Do the uh, do you have a shared understanding of that across the organisation? Uh, well, first of all, within the leadership team, and then across the organisation. And ideally, there needs to be some. Uh, this needs to result in some kind of uh, tangible ways to, or at least point out when quality is not, or the the culture is lacking, so that it can be tracked. Um, from a uh, some of the best organizations I've worked in and Klarna is included in this there especially there needs to be ways or uh, all the way down the accountability line directly from the uh, the CTO level if necessary ways to track and report steadily on um, kind of issues that are identified and these are kind of taking arbitrary aspects of kind of excellent software culture in some respects, but like if we take a kind of easy and quantifiable example, like vulnerabilities identified in software, um, that sort of thing um, is very uh, kind of superficial uh, data point to start on, but it's quite an easy one because it's so obvious. That kind of reporting is easily made available to everyone. And uh, kind of, as I said, can be tracked and reported on all the way down the, the chain once everyone has understood exactly how it's reported, how it's generated, who's accountable for fixing it, and then uh, uh, how often uh, it needs, that needs to be followed up on frequently uh, to ensure that it's going down. Is, is it easy to get people to be accountable for that, though? Yeah. So the tracking from CTO downwards, yeah, on mm. quality, yeah, is easily measurable how, how do you get them to take accountability for that yeah for example people coming in yeah if they, if, if that's already set yeah do they, are they going to feel accountable for that 
when they come into the job? Or I mean, how do you how do you, how do you do it? Uh, I mean, I, I think the these sorts of metrics, if if we have agreed on some of these quantifiable metrics and we are tracking them, then they must. Uh, if we are tracking them all the way down the chain, then they must also be tracked on a team level, and mm. every vulnerability must be uh, must be kind of attributable to a team, not for <laughs> I shouldn't say blame reasons, for example, but to know who is uh, accountable for fixing that or investigating it, um, mm. and and the team themselves must be able to view and investigate anything that is reported. There must therefore be a centralized way to to see this um, mm. and this, this is much easier obviously with some types of uh quantifiable and very easily measurable uh, things like vulnerabilities because that's a painfully obvious one um, mm. there are obviously plenty of aspects of excellent software which are not so easy to track in a quantifiable way Okay, um, Andreas, what, what are your thoughts around this? How do we engage people to take accountability? It's a very good question, I would say. It's a accountability in itself. I mean, you need to, to create the fundamentals in order to, to make people become or, or want to be accountable. Um, and I think a lot lies in the culture itself and, and usually like you need some sort of bottom-up commitment, right? You need people to feel that I'm, I'm taking ownership, I'm valued for what I'm doing, uh, and when I do stuff, it's, it's seen and heard. Like, uh, um, like let's say there comes in a bug in the system and you're doing, as many companies do today, continuous delivery, and you want someone to act on this, like uh, not necessarily the one, the team that introduced the bug, or if it was an old one, you you'd want, like someone to take the the ownership and be accountable for yeah we we stand by this software like like uh, we have committed to it so now let's make sure it works like yeah uh, and and um, and that could be on the perspective if we're talking more about an engineering excellence like uh, a commit on on the process in itself what kind of coverage are we aiming for in let's say um, unit test uh, end-to-end tests and those kind of things to make sure that we can also enable us to fastly iterate and release a bug fix. I mean, then it's easy to take accountability, uh, I would say. But then you can also argue what happens if it's security flaws and these kind of things. And no one really wants to stand by those. But I think to, to, to enable uh, and, and drive a culture uh, where we have the bottom-up commitment and, and, and ownership and also facilitate. We're going to talk a little bit about team topology later but i think that's also crucial in the sense that right having the right tools uh, to be able uh, to drive the excellence like having the um, the different teams do what they're good at uh, and make sure we also have a holistic and, and committed uh, uh, a process around how we work with quality uh, then then i believe we will enable uh, the um, accountability mm. Make it easy for for them. <laughs> What's your thoughts, Tobias? Um, I, I I I do agree with you, uh, Jamie. I mean, um, excellence needs to be defined, right? So everybody needs to be clear on what what that is. I I, however, don't think it's 
necessarily so that um, it needs to be it needs to come from the top. I'm more sort of on Andreas saying bottom up uh, because I really think that accountability to me it's not the same thing as as responsibility. Let's put it that first, right? Me as a manager, I can hand out responsibilities, right? I can tell people that they're responsible for this, right? But it's really them taking accountability for it. It's really hard to give some, tell someone to be accountable for it. Responsibility I can give out. Uh, so I think there is a couple of things that needs to happen before people start to take, feel that they're accountable or can take accountability for something. And I think, so clarity around the responsibility. So clarity is super important. You need to know where what you're aiming for, what you want to achieve and what the responsibilities are. I also think that we often forget in these discussions that there's a certain level of competence needed and knowledge, right? So the competence needs to be there as well. If I then, as an individual, uh, have feel that I have autonomy and control, so autonomy, control, competence, and clarity, I think those are really important ingredients for me to feel that I can take the accountability and I can take the full responsibility for this, right? Um, I actually have a good good sort of story from, from Klarna, from my time at Klarna. This is kind of way back. Um, team doesn't exist anymore. I, I know that some people are still working at Klarna, but but it's a it's a story. And maybe I I address it a little bit to sound better as well. But we we were in a, a, a pretty mature team in terms that we've we've been sort of a team for quite some time. We had loads of discussions around we were a supporting team, so we supported other development teams. We had lots of discussions about our purpose and our mission, and some people really wanted to sort of dissolve the team and say that our our team it's a it's a sign of 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 um, things not working really well because they should the dev teams should be able to run this on their own. Uh, we had loads of those discussions, and and uh, even though we had a fairly sort of mature everybody was kind and and and, and doing well. We didn't really have the sort of the, the the edge that took us to the next level. We then introduced uh, an engagement tool um, in our group, and there wasn't any really good one at the time at Klarna. I don't know what they're using now, but we started using uh, Office Vibe. And every week, we as a team started looking at the the numbers together. And when the individuals in the team started caring about the results we got from Office Vibe. Something happened. Something kicked in. I've been trying to understand really what it was, but they felt really engaged in our team dynamics, how we were doing as a team, and the results we actually produced. So I think that's when people, after that, people started to to, to take accountability in a whole different way than than previously. It was a very interesting experience. I haven't um, experienced it so clearly before, and since then. Uh, but um, it, it, it's happened a couple of times that I feel that now people have what they, they, they need to take accountability, but that was a really good sort of experience in that team. I wonder what, why, why it was. That's the golden ticket, isn't it? <laughs> that is the golden ticket. Yeah, do you think... Uh, yeah, well, I mean, what are your thoughts around that, Jamie? Yeah, I mean, I think the... <clears throat> I definitely agree to this, that the... I think there's a there's definitely a need. Well, what I didn't mean to say is that it's entirely top down to decide these things. I think that obviously a lot of the 
the excellent practices start from the, the ground up um, and need to be iterated on and come from the teams themselves. But then they definitely, or at least I think the piece that I found in, from past companies is that they need to be supported across the organization. And then there's a very difficult balance that I'm sure you've all found as well between trying to encourage innovation and also try and standardize so that um, some spread good practices as much as possible across the organization. And in some cases, there's it helps to have support across the organization for an initiative in spreading it across teams in order to make it useful. Um, and that comes with friction in a sense in some cases in that some teams will want to do something different and use a particularly, I don't know, a different engagement survey. In some cases, that's fine. In some cases, um, it may be uh, kind of more noise than, than it provides it in good if there is tooling that conflicts or provides wildly different and inconsistent results. Or, um, and the, those bits, I think it's, a, it's always a difficult balance to, uh, to tread, I think, on those aspects. It sounds like to me, so I was thinking then, there's quite, it sounded like you got the correct recruitment at the start of those people, then the skill level timed right, and then it's just timing, I suppose. A problem came about and they all came together. Yeah, because I was thinking of this question when you sent it to me, Tobias. And if you don't have accountable people, yeah, in your recruitment, you're not really going to get accountable results. Uh, can, can you, how, how do you mean? You mean that the, the, the people hiring needs to feel accountable for the hiring? Yeah, I mean, so if you're thinking of how do we engage people to take accountability, yeah, that is kind of um, a trait that some people just don't have. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah, well, maybe that's the case, but I'd like to think that anyone can learn anything, right? So, yeah. So, but I, I, I think. I think the elements of, of clarity around where we're going, the competence and, and feeling that you're in control, adding sort of um, social safety into that. And I think you have a pretty good sort of ground for getting to a point where people feel that they can take accountability and are not afraid of doing it, right? Um, I, I really want, to, want people to strive uh, towards taking accountability and, and they feel a pride in that. Um, but some people really want to do, but they don't have the competence. I think that's a thing we can learn, right? We can teach people, we can educate people in the right level, and then they take competence. I think the hardest one is really to get people into sort of the safety zone and where they feel they're in control or autonomous enough so that they can take accountability. The easiest sort of excuse of, of they think I've come across is where people feel that Okay, it's somebody else's fault. I'm not in control here, really. It's someone else who made this mess, or then for some reason you don't feel that you can take sort of accountability for for it. Andreas, do you want to uh, finish off finish us off on this uh, this topic? Sure. No, I think it's. Um, I mean, from a safety perspective, um, where you have high psychology safety in a team. Um, you feel heard and you are engaged and involved. Of course, that means that that you dare to to take risks. Um, your your team is covering for you, and I think I think uh, 
that's crucial. I mean, it's crucial to to drive the the ownership and accountability uh, in, in those cases. Perfect. Okay, great discussion, guys. Love that. Um, second, uh, we're going to go on to Jamie's questions. So um, it was a statement. This, uh, so we'll ask you to go into a bit more detail, Jamie. But Jamie mentioned um, making engineering excellence a shared concern in non-engineering departments. Really interesting. Yeah, give us some context around why you asked the well, why you said the statement, etc. I mean, so the, the uh, part of the this particular statement and topic of discussion is that in the in some cases and many organisations I've worked in, in the very nature of calling it engineering excellence means that anyone who is not an engineer immediately goes, oh well, that's engineering's problem, um, and we know that that is not the truth. Um, uh, and that's that's how we make the rest of the organization understand that this is not just an engineering problem. Um, that's the start of it, yes. Okay. Um, okay, let's, uh, I'll give you first go, Andreas. How do we do it? Yeah. Uh, well, it's not an easy one. Um, I mean, usually expectations on engineering is very high um, from, I mean, customers from uh, internally in, in the company and so on. And, but often uh, little knowledge around uh, what's actually involved to solve things uh, in a good uh, qualitative way. Uh, I mean, usually I'd say the expectations uh, on an R&D or engineering is fix bugs in a, in a, in a fast fashion, like that, that's usually the expectation, but, and that's also why I take, uh, in our case at Get Accept, the, our company onboarding uh, sessions, I usually have a talk there. And I, I try to take that opportunity to really, to boil it down into the, uh, what we're actually trying to achieve. <laughs> and usually when I make that list, that's a, I mean, I can go on forever. Um, but, but, but I think in, in order to, to, to set the expectations right, you also need to, there, of course, needs to be an advocate uh, for engineering, uh, even, I mean, inside an R&D department, there are lots of different roles and needs, product design, QA, engineering, and so on. So, uh, of course, um, engineering usually comes last. They come in the delivery phase. And, and uh, that also means that a good ad advo advocate for engineering uh, usually turns out better, I, I would say. Uh, but that is mainly uh, to put down expectations, I would say, and, and, and um, at, at least in in, uh, in my mind. Tobias, I think it's about education, uh, but and, and and being able to sympathize both ways, right? So engineers need to know what the business is feeling and and the hurt there. Um, I mean, again, Klarna is a good example, right? I don't know how it is right now, but but back in the days, we used to sit in on on uh, customer calls, right? Um, just to get the feeling and and understand what the problems we're facing, right? Um, I've done that in a couple of other companies as well. It's really important to get sort of close to the ground and understand the business and understand what other departments are facing. If you do that and start to sympathize with them, it's much easier to get their sympathy. Um, the other way around, right? 
So I think education is is super important. Now where I am uh, right now, we've um, kind of deliberately not hired engineers with an extensive fintech background because um, we want in in some areas we want fresh pair of eyes, right? And and they're kind of saying, oh, we need uh, we need um, 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 a sort of um, financial education for engineers. We need to learn uh, economics, right? Um, but so are the the other side of, of what we're doing. They're also saying, okay, we need sort of the one-on-one on, on tech and how you build a, a fintech organization and what problems you're facing, right? And I think that's a really good thing, right? If you get that sort of constant learning and, and, and being able to sympathize with each other, I think that's super important. Love that. Um, Jamie, yeah, have you got any kind of thoughts around... What what you're even doing now at Clan or what you've done before to make this work? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I mean, what, what you were saying to this that being close to the customer is, I think, part of the key here. In, in my experience at Klarna, for example, um, you will often hear the often hear Sebastian, for example, the CEO of Klarna, talking about customer obsession and getting close to your customer, and that. That definitely still is the is the case uh, at Klarna, and it, one of the things that I've found that really helps here is that the because the the teams and all teams have a kind of a, an accountable area and a vision for that, they are they must know exactly how who their customers are and what they are doing to help them, and. Conversely, it, it means that kind of uh, any initiatives uh, need to be able to relate to how it helps the customer. And most engineering excellence, or most engineering excellence initiatives at the end of the day, do have some benefit on the product and, and end benefit on the on the customer. And that means that it should also be highly relatable for anyone from the I don't know, a commercial team who are trying to sell the product, uh, a marketing team who are advertising it, or indeed kind of other internal customers who uh, who know about it. It's about trying to relate it back to what is the, the end customer impact that's expected from doing this and how we talk about it. Uh, Andreas, any, any further thoughts while you've been listening? I think there are good points, uh, but I also think there are, uh, I mean, you can argue in R&D is part of, has many uh, different roles, uh, product engineering, design, and so on. And, and of course, if if you are going to to let the, the engineering team R&D kind of take care of business, uh, there also need to be a good way of, of setting a, a product strategy and, and to understand like, where are we moving? What kind of problems do we need to solve in order to create value? Uh, for our users and I, I think a lot lies in there but maybe not necessarily from an from the engineers like they're also if we're going back to accountability like what do you want the actual engineers to be accountable for uh, and I, I I like to boil it down to uh, of course to the more engineering kind of work but that doesn't mean we can't work in cross-functional team where we as a team are more outcome based like we're going to raise our MPS from 20 to 40 or something like that. I think in order to understand the business, that's crucial for that matter, uh, to be honest. 
And Tobias, to finish us off. I, I, I just came to think about one thing, which I think is important to mention as well, right? I, I think the three of us, we sit right now in very sort of uh, tech-driven companies. And in those kind of contexts, it's, it's always easier, right? You always get your uh, voice heard a lot more. I've been in a couple of uh, um, locations, I'm not going to name any names, where tech is not the main driver, right? It's more of a support. It's, it's something that is uh, evil needed. <laughs> Um, you just needs to be there and work. Uh, then it's much, much harder to to get that sympathy to to make them understand that uh, or to help us uh, reach that level of, of excellence. So I, one needs to bear that in mind. I think the three of us have a pretty good context and situation right now. Uh, I know that some out there are having a much, much harder time. Um, so be aware of, of um, what kind of company you're, you're operating in and, and the context around it. Okay. Um, okay, let's uh, go into the final question. Um, Andreas, so how can team topology enable engineering excellence and what does the future hold for it? So, Andreas, give us some uh, context, please. For sure. <clears throat> so, at the moment, we're kind of transitioning into uh, empowered product teams. Um, and also, this. Um, in this transition, uh, what kind of teams do we need? I mean, how do we divide ourselves uh, in order to solve uh, the needs of our users and, and, and create value? And also, how does that affect engineering in particular? Like, uh, in, in, you know, the teams we have today is kind of either experienced teams, which are vertical, or platform teams, which are kind of horizontal. Uh, so how do we divide each other in these verticals and horizontals in order to have a holistic view of, uh, from an engineering perspective, for instance, to really do a, a good backend that spans uh, and create um, uh, good uh, um, or enables um, our engineers to do really good work together? Like that's kind of the context around it. Perfect. Um, Tobias? That cheeky smile. We're gonna to go to you first. I absolutely think the sort of the team topology has a, a, a crucial role to play here. Um, starting off with that, um, but I don't think the organization or the team topology is the first thing you should look at. I think it's actually the last thing because there are other things that you need to set first or get yourself a view on. And uh, again, starting from the business, the business problem we're trying to solve is, is by far the most important. Uh, then moving on, do we have the architecture and the tech stack to solve that problem? Um, what other processes and, and constraints do we have? Is it a regulated market? Do we have other things that we need to consider? So I would go about it from the process side as well. Once I've understood those three, so the business, the architecture, the tech stack, and the, and the processes that I need to adhere to, then I can start to look at, okay, how do I actually form the organization? What kind of teams do I build? What should the topology be like, right? And if I don't, and also throw in the, the, the ingredients of how do I reach a culture uh, excellence state or whatever we call it, right? Um, that's what I think you need in order to, to discuss how you want your engineering teams to be formed. If that makes sense. Um, Jamie? Yeah, so the, um, uh, I think the, the first 
thing that you mentioned around it not being the first thing to look at um, on the topology is is a good point. But the from the model that uh, Klarna has moved to in recent years around the what we call internally our operating model um, is uh, it's actually so very much actually coming back to the first question that we had in this, uh, which is kind of encouraging engaging people to take accountability. Uh, for for everything which uh, if you haven't seen or heard about it the, the kind of operating model that we operate in is um kind of empowers teams to be individual conceptually startups that happen to work for a very large and very very well funded um, company uh, but uh, more than that aiming to empower them to own their their area entirely from front to back, top to bottom, um, and the vision area for that front to back, top to bottom. And that includes all aspects, including, uh, for example, um, the quality of their products, the direction of their products, and as, as part of that, the, uh, the kind of any engineering excellence initiatives and the quality of what they produce there. Um, and there is always a single accountable lead uh, for a given team, and given area, and therefore the, the accountability line is clear. Um, they do not have to uh, do everything themselves, but they are ultimately accountable. So if there are issues with something, for example, I don't know, uh, say that there is not a very good culture of engineering excellence in a particular team, then uh, they are the ones who are accountable for recognizing that and understanding how and what changes need to be made to, to bring that that in line. And this is not, I'm not necessarily suggesting that this is the only way to uh, introduce this or indeed fix this or that every team should or every company should introduce this. But uh, certainly from from my point of view, it's a very, it's a very clear, um, it's a very clear line to follow in order to help understand who is responsible for this and uh, what do they need. And the answer is you have to ask them what they need. But at least working out who's responsible for this is the first instance. And Andreas, kind of, kind of, what, what are your thoughts, kind of around, around this? Yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, you don't start with a team topology; <laughs> uh, that would be hard. But once you're there, uh, I think there are, are many, many interesting aspects of that one. And I mean, I'm trying like to focus on on how to avoid the silos, like to 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 share the knowledge uh, between the teams. And I think from a, a vertical team, like they have, a, they need to have an end-to-end -end, uh, perspective or ownership in order to actually deliver value. Otherwise they will just be blocked by another team. Like how do you actually distinguish what kind of references you have between the teams? It's also very like, how does that affect the planning and so on? So there are so many aspects of the team topology. And of course it, it it will evolve. It will change. You will, uh, you will, you will do like turns uh, to get uh, to get further down the line. But but uh, I think it's a very it's a very interesting topic to, to talk around. Uh, and Andreas, what what are the areas uh, that you've seen work? I suppose in the last couple of years around uh, team topology. Um. So I'm on, in in order to, I really I like. I really like to avoid silos in that sense, and, and and also like when we talk about other aspects of the game, like on call, for instance, uh, who should be accountable or responsible for that? If you can have 
more of a shared model. Of course, how, how big can a team topology be where you have relationships between vertical and horizontals? Uh, that, that's interesting, of course, but I think it can become pretty big uh, and still have a holistic view of, of from the engineering perspective, perspective and also have common practices and platform team that really helps out and enables um, experience team or the vertical team. So I think you can, in a really smart way, uh, distinguish how, how all the engineers and, and the cross-functional team can be enabled because of the topology, uh, for sure. Tobias, any further comments? No, you entered it all. No, I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> and we're done. See you later. No, I'm checking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I mean, but I, I, I also agree with you, Andreas. I, I, um, I think it plays a, a, a big role. I, and I, I know that I'm, I made my fair share of, of mistakes in previously looking too much sort of in trying to achieve a, a good architecture using sort of a reverse convey maneuver to to uh, to get to the right uh, point in in the in both in the architecture but also in the organization and and kind of almost completely forgetting about sort of interdependencies and 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 the soft part of of sharing knowledge and sharing competence and things like that so i i think that's absolutely something one has to keep in mind as well there are it's a it's a good thing that um, that Manuel and and, and his uh, companion wrote the book about team topologies. I think there's a good, there's a lot of good sort of um, things from that book. It's it's quite interesting that one of the uh, future topics we've got is around um, Conway's law. Um, so it's quite <laughs> quite interesting. We might have a, a, a actual whole discussion around that. Um, I, I suppose I suppose the second part of Andreas's question, a, a nice way to finish this podcast is, let's say we get there, yeah, uh, everything else is in place, and we can look at topology. Um, is there anything that you can see into the future that might happen that you can see happening uh, in regards to team topology? Yeah, and I'll go for you first, Andreas. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, that, that, that's a really tough one. I mean, it's. Uh, I think we have come very far. I mean, um, we we try to aim more at outcome uh, more than output. Like, and I think that kind of sets the direction of if teams in general need to be more outcome based, like the OKR framework, for instance, um, I think there is something lies in there. And also the, the technology stack, for sure. <laughs> uh, what kind of languages do we pick? Uh, how does we're adopting GraphQL? How does that affect? Like, I think those questions are very, very interesting. Uh, I believe that GraphQL in that sense, from a team topology perspective, where platform team and experience teams help each other, GraphQL becomes kind of a middleware. Um, super exciting. So, so uh, um, I do foresee like going more outcome and, and having uh, tech stacks that, that helps share the knowledge uh, even more. Uh, Jamie? Yes, uh, I think there's the uh, outcome-based model is definitely the one that I foresee us moving more towards. And I see a lot more tooling to try and uh, there'll be 
endless numbers of startups and probably are already trying to fill my inbox with uh, offers of help to try and <laughs> enable closer collaboration on various aspects, uh, better empowerment, better autonomy for teams with um, various kind of uh, aspects of software quality monitoring, all of those sorts of things. Um, and I, I think that trend will continue, at least for now. And to finish us off, Tobias. So I, I, I have a, I can't tell about the future because if I could, I wouldn't be sitting here, right? But, <laughs> but one thing that I think is, is very interesting is how, of course, COVID has affected us, right? Then everybody was working remote there for a period and, and now people are moving back a little bit. But I'm, I'm hoping that this sort of opened the door to even more remote work with um, us finding um, uh, finding talent in other places where we didn't thought about it before. I, I'm hoping that we will see a more diversified uh, pool of uh, and colleagues, right? And I think with that comes an, an increased um, uh, inclusion. And I, I think that would be a, a super interesting thing and, and something that I'm hoping for as well. It'd be, it'd be a good thing for the world to, to reach that. Fantastic ending. Um, okay, for those people who are still listening, thank you so much again. 